Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney with the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Happy July 4th holiday week. Thanks for spending part of it with us here at Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Ben Baldanza. Hey, Chris, and hello, listeners. We've got an interesting conversation coming up with Greg Webb, the CEO of Travelport. But first, Chris, on this busy July 4th travel weekend for airlines, let's cover off some news. I'm on it, Ben. Uh, let's start with what anyone else who has flown this past week already knows, which is airports and airlines are jam-packed in the U.S. TSA is consistently screening 2 million-plus passengers daily, and on July 1st, TSA for the first time processed more passengers in 2021 than the same day in 2019. Hopefully I got that right. So Ben, traffic is up, fares are up. Uh, as carriers close the second quarter uh, and get ready to announce financial results later this month, what are you thinking about? Well, it is a real busy July 4th weekend for sure. You know, I'm going to give a little airline nerdiness before I answer your direct question, which is I'm wondering about how real that July 1st thing is in that July 4th this week was kind of the Sunday, Monday. So the first was on a Friday, whereas last year the first was, a, you know, in the middle, more in the middle of the week. So part of it may be sort of the falling of the fourth in terms of it being bigger. But the fact that it was actually bigger than 2019 is great. If you looked at sort of whether the holiday was on the exact same day of the week, it clearly still would have been big. I wonder if it would have been bigger. But that's just my airline nerdiness thinking like that. So in terms of second quarter, I still think it's going to be a weak quarter financially because one weekend doesn't make the whole quarter, but traffic is clearly building. It's clearly building through the summer. Airports are full like you, Chris. I'm traveling this week and I'm guessing like you, I've seen very full airplanes and very full airports and long lines at Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts in the airports and things like that. And that's actually kind of nice to see as an airline guy, though, that uh, the world is coming back a bit. My concern continues to be that it could be a very strong summer for the airlines volume-wise, but probably a little weak on unit revenue just because it's so leisure-based and virtually all leisure-based. So as the second quarter comes to a close, that still has some relatively weak times in it. I think most of the commentary is going to be what people are thinking about for the July, August, September quarter and how their bookings look. And they're going to be talking about sort of the nice momentum going into the third quarter. My guess is that's what most of the earnings tonality is going to be in the second quarter and say, don't look at our numbers so much. Let's look at the trend. And that's a positive story. Uh, absolutely, Ben. I mean, certainly the analysts and the financial press understand that, um, 
this quarter was really you know getting strong and vibrant towards the end of the quarter but it was still a a pretty dismal period as traffic was coming back i think you know it's important for the consumer press and others who follow the industry just on a kind of a surface level understand that um, there's a big hole that the carriers still need to dig out of and so while things look really good over these past few weeks it's going to take a lot more than than that to bring this business back and then last week uh, i asked you to make a prediction about the united aircraft order and anything in the actual announcement that surprised you or stood out well, what surprised me is that it was 270 airplanes. A lot of the reports said 200. Uh, didn't surprise me that it was all Maxes and A321neos because that was largely what the press that had, you know, leaked this talked about. Interestingly, I was kind of interested in the mix of 737 Maxes, including some of the Max-10 which is a bigger, the biggest version of the Max, and why they might be ordering the Max 10 and the A321neo. Now, you know, sticklers will say, well, the 321neo has a few extra seats in it, which it does, but largely, at least as of today, the 737 Max 10 is the plane that Boeing has to compete with the A321neo. And so, it was interesting to me that they ordered sort of two planes in that roughly same size category. For those who've been in the industry long enough, basically 757 kind of replacements. And that they ordered both of those as opposed to just lots of 737 Maxes to replace some of the RJs they talked about and maybe some of their older A319s and planes like that. The other thing that surprised me, Chris, was how Scott Kirby sort of pitched this as not this is going to make us greener or this is going to have us burn less fuel or this is going to make us more reliable or this is going to make our fleet a lot younger, all of which are probably true with this order, by the way. But he pitched it as this is all about improving the customer experience. And I get that getting on a bright new shiny airplane with seat back IFE and things like that is a nice thing to do. But in my mind, that doesn't replace sort of pleasant service, being on time, things like that. So I just thought it was interesting that there were so many ways they could talk positively about this order. And the way they talked about it was improvement of customer service, which is one feature but again, the plane you get on, and whether it's new or old, isn't the most important thing about customer service, I think. Well, maybe it's the leverage in to, to invest in other parts of the experience. It's like, if we're going to spend all this money on aircraft, um, we got to spend it in technology and airport facilities and other kinds of things to kind of match what we're promising. But yeah, I, I kind of had the same reaction. And I was really surprised about the seatback. IFE and some of the other stuff um, that was part of this deal, but certainly it was a bigger order than anyone expected. And I think that shows confidence in the business and the leadership of Scott and uh, where the where this company's headed. Well, if you didn't have clear before, you might want to seriously think about it after the news about the TSA counts we just talked about. Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. 
where will you go? Get back out there with Claire. So Ben, let's take the airline business into the courtroom for a few minutes. I know airline insiders will find this shocking, but American Airlines filed a contract breach lawsuit against Sabre this past week. And if you weren't sure, yes, I was being sarcastic about finding it shocking. Uh, this relationship has more drama and more litigation than Apple versus Facebook. We're not going to put Greg Webb on the spot when we talk to him in a few minutes about this. So Ben, I'm going to ask you about it. Well, I wasn't surprised about this, obviously, because Americans sues anyone who they think has wronged them. The interesting thing, as many of our users know, is Sabre and American used to be one company. Sabre was spawned out of American Airlines long ago. And maybe that makes them hate each other even more. I don't know. But Sabre is an important distributor, obviously. And they also run a lot of Americans' internal systems around their systems control functions, like their fuel planning, their flight planning, dispatch, things like that. I'm pretty sure American uses the Sabre suite of products for those things as well. So suing an important partner isn't always the best strategy businesses can have, but it's the one American chose this time and the one they've chosen in the past. My guess is they're going to figure this out with Sabre. They're going to get some kind of settlement, and then they're going to keep using Sabre products. That's my sense. Now, Chris, you used to work at Sabre. What's your view of this? Yeah, I mean, I've worked at American and I've worked at Sabre. I'm going to try to stay Switzerland-like here in this conversation. Um, I, you know, I think it's an unfortunate way to operate a relationship, and there's probably much more productive ways to um, deal with each other, but it's the way they're used to, unfortunately. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, at some point, you think a judge would just, like, look at the two of them and say, you kids need to work this out uh, and leave the court to some other things, but that's just the way it's going to be. Finally, in another airline distribution courtroom melodrama, the flight discounting site Skiplagged is complaining to a federal court that Southwest is being mean to them. Uh, those are my words, but that's essentially the complaint. Uh, ben, it might be useful for you to quickly recap what Skiplag does, and then I'm interested in your thoughts about this matter uh, with the dispute with Southwest. You know, Skiplagged is such an interesting site. It's a site that helps users find cheap fares on airlines like other sites do, but they specifically sort of promote the fact that they like to find loopholes in airline ticketing, one specifically called hidden city ticketing. And as most of our users know, that might be, for example, when we used to work at U.S. Airways, Chris, we used to get this all the time, that a flight from Charlotte to Los Angeles on a close-to-departure basis would be pretty expensive. But if you flew from Greensboro to Atlanta, you would connect in Charlotte and pay a lower price. So if you bought the ticket from Greensboro and you know maybe drove your car out there and flew out, and flew connect one way, but on the way back just got off in Charlotte or maybe figured out a way to never even fly the Greensboro Charlotte piece, you could get the cheaper fare. And Skip Lag finds those kind of loopholes. Now, it's not illegal to book that kind of ticketing on most airlines, but airlines don't like you to do it. And it costs them inventory and it messes up their yield management forecasting because of the way people fly and all kinds of problems. The interesting thing here is that Southwest is saying that Skiplagged is getting their pricing information from their website by scraping it. And they never gave Skiplagged the legal right to do that. 
And Skip Lag to say, no, we don't get it from your website. So we're not violating any of your terms and conditions because we get it from other places. So I'm wondering where they do get it. This is just a fascinating lawsuit to me, Chris. Skip Lagged is a site that probably most airlines would rather didn't exist, yet consumers clearly want cheap fares and they look at the loopholes in the pricing system. So rather than just saying, I'll find you the best rate on the best airline at the time you want, I'll do a little shady thing for you, but I'll stay within the law. And that's an interesting place for a distributor's website to play. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that Southwest doesn't like them and is saying, you know, stop using my data if I don't let you. And it's not surprising to me that other airlines have also sued Skip Lag for kind of the same kind of thing before. So when you build your business on sort of shady kind of ideas, it doesn't surprise me that those you're affecting are going to come back strong at you. When I was at Orbis, I had to do a little PR battle with Mr. Zaman, who runs Skip Lag, because he was pulling United fares. Well, he was pulling other multiple fares via orbits united told us to make him stop it and so we got caught up in the legal battle because united wanted us to be a party to the litigation and you know look everybody roots for the underdog and he was like a 22 year old kid at the time who came up with this technology and so here's big bad united and you know bigger than skip lag but not necessarily huge orbits you know, picking on this young kid who came up with the technology. I think the struggle here is airlines holding on to their contracted carriage rules, which are kind of man-made rules and they're not laws. And as you pointed out, Ben, it's not illegal. But if they had started these kind of conversations with, for security purposes, we need to know who's on our airplanes and when they get off. And if that had been the original conversations, I think Perhaps it would have been a different story, but it gets embedded in our fare rules and our revenue management systems and whatever else, which again are kind of airline problems, not skip lags problems. So if they would take a different approach, I think people would understand it better, but they choose to kind of hide behind, again, contracts of carriage, which the average consumer either doesn't understand or they know that that's why an airline isn't going to give them their money back. So people are rooting for skip lag. Yeah, I'm sure many consumers will root for them because, again, it helps them find things they might not find on their own or find them more quickly, even if they're resourceful on their own. But again, it seems that you know airlines try to protect their revenue integrity all they can. They recognize yep. customers want really low fares. They try to offer them on their website. They try to work with places like Priceline and Kayak and others who are a little more respectful, if you will, of the airline's basic structure in the fares. And skip lag sort of, you know, skirts around the edges. And in one way that makes you want to root for them. In some ways it makes you want to squash them, I think. Look, they blatantly tell their their customers, like, don't do this too often and don't check a bag and don't use your frequent flyer number on you know, as you're traveling. I mean, they know that they're pushing the envelope here. And airlines also have the technology to catch these people. So they ought to just, if they don't want Skip Lag to do what they're doing, they ought to just dry up the market. And uh, you know, people will do it once and they get caught and they'll stop. 
Well, that's an interesting thing. And that would put Skiplac out of business pretty quickly if their customers started uh, suing them because the ticket they thought they bought wasn't accepted by the airline. That's right. Well, we'll be right back with our conversation with Greg Webb from Travelport. And I'm sure our friends at TA Connections will be listening to this discussion about travel distribution. Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections offering an intelligent, integrated, flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to deploy an industry-leading mix of augmentation and automation tools configured to the company's unique needs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. We're glad to be joined this week by our guest, Greg Webb, the CEO of Travelport. Uh, Greg, uh, good to have you with us. And for those not familiar with you or Travelport, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and just what Travelport does? Sure. I've been in the travel industry for a, a long time with a competitor of Travelports as well as American Airlines. But joined Travelport about 20 months ago when they went from public to private. Travelport is one of the largest travel retailers in the world. We are an aggregator of content between buyers and sellers of travel and work with 450 plus airlines, all the hotel companies, car rental, cruise, tour, uh, to aggregate that content and make sure that we deliver on a value proposition of really connecting buyers and sellers. Well, that's great, Greg. So when you joined Travelport, they'd been through several tough years in the competitive distance between Travelport and your largest competitors, Sabre and Amadeus, seemed to be growing. What did you find when you joined and what were your priorities to sort of maybe rectify that situation? Yeah, Ben, that's a great question, actually. And first of all, much of the problem that Travelport had faced was, as they say, of thine own hand. It was largely my fault when I was at a competitor. And because of that, I really understood the reasons that Travelport had been struggling. And it did turn into the mantra of, of what we needed to do. The one was we needed to refocus on making sure we had the best product in the industry. So the best technology and the best capability. And so we've doubled down on our investment in our next generation platform, which calls Travelport Plus which is, we think, really going to be game-changing associated with how we impact that buy-sell process. It's in partnership, too, with our recently announced deal with Amazon Web Services. So we'll, we'll be moving much of the platform to AWS uh, and their cloud tools over the next you know, couple of years. And uh, we think it, it really allows us for a platform that can be differentiated. And we're also the beneficiary of the fact that we are completely independent of the airline reservation system world. So both of our competitors are still tightly tied to having to host the airline passenger service systems for a number of airlines. We don't have that. And so we don't have to operate on the traditional kind of airline IT backbone. So we're able to operate completely independently of that, which allows us to be a, a lot more free in our thinking about how data should be structured, about the way that we can interoperate, about the way that, that we can transact. And so I think that gives us an advantage moving forward. So Greg, a multi-part question here. Uh, as you've been charting this 
new vision for Travelport. How have travel suppliers and specifically airlines responded? And uh, how have you been able to support uh, those same business partners and suppliers during the pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. The, the, so first of all, the, our airline partners have been very supportive of the direction. I think they see that I've said before, I hate the, the term GDS because it comes with so much kind of legacy baggage. And when I talk about what our goal is for Travelport, it's to be the best multi-source content aggregator in the industry. And so a, a lot of that has been around trying to talk to our supply side guys. So airlines, hotels, crews about the fact that we, we really do want to be the easiest to work with from an inventory perspective, such that we aggregate content in a more effective way than any of our competitors. And that, that gets them value uplift. If you think about value in the, that travel ecosystem, we want to be the ones that deliver the greatest value per ticket across the board. So they've been very supportive of that as a vision. Secondly, we did a lot from the start of the pandemic. We were the first ones in March of 2020. We created a COVID-19 hub. We decided to make available not just to our customers, but we made it available to the public as well, which was an aggregation of all of the health and safety uh, information for all of our travel suppliers. So we got and put together from our hotel partners, from our airline partners, from our cruise partners, all their health and safety data so that you could get it in the hub. Secondly, for hoteliers, we actually utilize some screen space that we normally use for ads and replace that with the safety information for each individual hotel. So if hotels wanted to provide us with their health and safety information, it was available to both for travel agencies that use our desktop as well as in our API so that if any of our partners wanted to access that data, they had access. So we were very aggressive early on in trying to make sure that we were making information available to travelers because it became obvious early on and, and it's become more obvious lately that the biggest kind of factor in people deciding whether or not to travel or not travel is whether or not they feel safe followed very closely by the policy that happens to be, exist for for international travel right now. You know, we see travel demand in the shopping system is very aggressive right now. People want to travel and in, in the international space, it's largely being inhibited by policy. Well, I'm sure providing that information is helping make people feel more confident about travel. Thank you. You know, Greg, you've certainly seen the growth of low-cost airlines all around the world with differing business models, lots of unbundling affairs and things like that. How does that growth and those different business models affect Travelport's approach to the market? Yeah, I, Ben, I think I should be asking you that question. Uh, so look there, nobody knows more about low cost carriers than you do. The, we, what tends to happen, the quick answer is they obviously need to become part of the travel ecosystem that Travelport is involved with. And we've made steps on that. So, uh, obviously we were the first to get a full participation agreement with Southwest. So, you know, Southwest has been a fantastic partner since we struck our deal a little over 18 months ago. And that model that we created with Southwest is one that we're hoping we can proliferate with other low cost carriers because 
as you well know, there are over, and I think even more impacted by the pandemic, there are cities and networks that are now only served by low-cost carriers. And so it becomes more important for us to make sure that they are part of our network of services, but they don't always operate in the same way. So I think one of the things that that we're having to work on right now is figuring out business models that work for low-cost carriers to make sure that their participation in the GDS is, uh, in, and I shouldn't say all the GDSs, but certainly in Travelport, we can find a way to facilitate that. And you know, one of the things that we've talked about is value-based pricing and you know, changing from a, maybe a traditional uh, economic model to something that mirrors the way that they service their customers. So obviously low-cost carriers will continue to be an important part of the airline ecosystem and uh, more and more we'd like to make them part of the travel port ecosystem. So piggybacking off that general conversation and the bundling or unbundling affairs, where do things stand with NDC and did the pandemic impact airlines plans for NDC? And also, if you could give our listeners a 30-second description of what NDC stands for and what it means. Yeah. So NDC is new distribution capability. The idea was originally a structure around a new technology standard for how to distribute content, a different structure, which didn't require for the pre-filing of fares through ATPCO. And so it's a different technological standard. The, the problem that has occurred with NDC is that it was supposed to be a standard. And I guess like all good standards, it's not a standard. Every airline that's done it so far, and there's only been a handful, has implemented it in a different way which is problematic in the long run, because obviously this is an an extraordinarily complex industry. And given the alliances and co-chair agreements and all the intricacies of how, you know, airline networks need to work when you have a non-standard standard standard out there, it it becomes more difficult. And so that being said, I think the COVID-19 crisis has been interesting because some people plowed ahead and have continued to to try to implement new capabilities via NDC. Others have pulled back given their their investment profile, given the just their tolerance for change during COVID have pulled back on those things. I you know, my expectation is that for a hand again, I think it's a small number for a handful, uh, maybe two handfuls and two feet full, the top 20 airlines in the in the world will likely do something on the NDC front. It'll be interesting to see how much. For others, you know, airlines are, uh, and this is not a slight to the airline folks listening, I work for one, but airlines are not necessarily known for being the very top tier IT groups in the world. And so consequently, NDC takes a lot of heavy lift on the, on the tech side. And I think that it's a cost benefit analysis that people will do, which is, you know, how much can I really, because there's a lot of capability in the traditional way of providing service that exists today anyway. So we'll see, but I, yeah, I definitely think the, you know, the top 20, 30 airlines will, will implement something uh, along the NDC line in the next three to five years. And we'll see on, on capabilities that that's the part that everybody I think is waiting on, which is, the promise of NDC was 
you know, more personalized offers, really a data-driven pricing structure based on, you know, whether it was company or person or profile, and that it would also be a bigger break in the ancillary pricing, uh, you know, whether it was seats and bags or food and beverage, et cetera. And we haven't really seen that yet, but I think that's kind of the next evolution. You know, the aviation trade press loves to cover the tension between suppliers and distributors and sort of their perception of fights between airlines and hotels and the GDSs. But is there really much difference between the airline industry and other sectors when it comes to the supply chain, distribution and retail players? For example, in the auto industry or what the entertainment industry is with studios, content providers and artists? Yeah. So I was on a panel in 2001 called Death of the GDS, and we're still here. And that's because of the value that we provide. And I think that's kind of the the structure around it. Overall, I think we've worked pretty well together in, in the most recent past. We certainly worked together well during the pandemic. And I think some of the tension that existed Years ago, between the airlines and the GDSs in particular, somewhat the hotels, was a value question, which was it felt like the the airlines felt that they did not get the value that they desired from the way that they worked with the GDSs. And that, you know, that obviously has changed over time. I mean, if you look at kind of on a pure economic scale, the GDSs make up a very, very small amount of the distribution costs of airlines or hotels uh, kind of across the board. I think the tension that existed has largely gone away over the last, you know, five or six years. And I think as the GDSs have been really more focused on providing a value equation that makes good sense and providing technological solutions that make good sense for the supply side, I think uh, that's largely gone away. Well, uh, I was laughing to myself when you were talking about the death of the GDS panel because I guess how many lives have uh, GDS has had at this point? I mean, they've been they've been dead multiple times according to procrastinators. But like you said, you get back to the value proposition and what other solution can do it as efficiently and as effectively as a GDS. I just have to add on this industry does not and cannot exist without an aggregation source. It just doesn't. It's too complex. Consumers require the need to be able to shop and compare, and they need the ability to book across multiple airlines on multiple segments. They need the ability to be able to really understand and comparison shop. And that doesn't exist without an aggregation source. So call it a GDS, call it whatever you want, but that aggregation source has to exist or the industry folds. You're speaking to the choir on, as far as my concern, I don't know if Ben shares that point of view, but I think uh, you're absolutely right there, Greg. As we wrap up this discussion, and again, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. 20 months in, how are you feeling about Travelport? How are you feeling about uh, the GDS industry and its future moving forward? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I feel great about Travelport. We have made, even in the in the short time that I've been here, and really no credit to me, there was a lot of work that was being done before I got here. A lot of good technology and uh, had already laid the groundwork really for where we're headed with Travelport Plus, kind of our next generation platform. And so 
I feel great about uh, the direction of Travelport and where we're headed. I feel excited that we're finally seeing uh, recovery in kind of that travel ecosystem where, you know, if I look at uh, overall numbers, the, you know, U.S. is kind of leading the recovery about 60-ish plus percent recovered to 2019 numbers at this point on a domestic side of things, but um, still really lagging in international travel. So, but I, I'm, I feel really positive about uh, the direction for the industry and I feel positive about the direction for Travelport and, um, and, you know, excited to be here 20 months in. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for this time, this great insight. And I agree with you. The industry does need aggregators. And if anything, with more and more boutique hotels popping up and in individual destinations, individual operators wanting to get their products known to the world. If anything, the world needs aggregators more than ever, I think. We really, really appreciate your insights and time. And all of our listeners at Airlines Confidential, I'm sure learned a lot. I sure know I did. Thanks, Ben. And thanks, Chris. I uh, enjoyed the time. Thanks, Greg, for joining us as well. And well, I know you've had bigger issues than a rebranding to deal with. I, I do want to compliment you on your rebranding campaign. It seems like just about daily I saw a new post from a travel port employee or a travel port partner or supplier with your rebranding efforts over the past six months. So that's been fun to watch. I appreciate that, Chris. And I have to tell you that Jen Cato, our chief marketing officer, did a fantastic job on that entire campaign. And I will tell you that you're not the first person. As a matter of fact, I've gotten multiple emails from people going, I seriously cannot not see Travelport in my LinkedIn feed. It's there every <laughs> second of every day. They did a great job with that brand the world campaign and really successful. And it was great to get it out there. We are a fundamentally different company than when I got here and we needed a fundamentally different brand that was a little more bold and a little more brash. And, and I think we got that. You sure did. Well, thanks again, and we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Greg Webb for joining us for that great discussion. Uh, we appreciate his taking our questions, and now it's time for listener questions. Remember, you can leave a question for us on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. Well, Chris, first up is a question from Robert Russo from Detroit, Michigan, commenting on our discussion last week about airline schedule cancellations. He writes, you guys spoke on staff shortages in last week's episode. While carriers are feeling this directly, their service providers are feeling it even more. Providers typically start just above minimum wage and go up from there. With $15 per hour being the de facto minimum wage post-pandemic, what does that do to service providers? How do you see this playing out in the long term? Do you see the service provider's role changing in the future? So, Robert, great question. Thanks for writing in. And to clarify for any listeners who weren't 
completely sure about what he's referring to. We're generally talking about companies that provide various support services to airlines at airports. So wheelchair assistance for passengers, cabin cleaning, baggage delivery to hotels and people's homes. Over the years, these functions that were generally handled by airline employees were contracted out to providers who could do it more efficiently, i.e. cheaper. But they were also better equipped to handle the volume, especially where you may not have the level of service at a station to justify standalone staff, and so you could uh, spread that uh, over a provider and multiple carriers. So there's a little bit of chickens coming home to roost here. In the drive for efficiency, there was, and Ben, you can correct me when we finish, uh, but there might have been a race to the bottom to find the provider with the lowest price. And now with the labor shortages we're seeing around the country and the pressure on wages, you know, why is a worker going to haul themselves out to an airport, which is generally not a very convenient place to get to or expensive if you're taking public transportation, to push wheelchairs for $9 an hour when they could work close to home in retail or fast food or at Amazon or wherever for $15 an hour or even more. So my thought, Robert, is airlines, and I think you, you're thinking the same thing, airlines can't afford to have their operations upended by these functions, not because they're not important, but because they're all an important part of the passenger service process. So I'm guessing that airline executives are realizing this and where they might have thought before this was the provider's problem to solve. The smart airline execs are working with these service providers to get to some solutions and rethink how important these deliverables are and what's important. And perhaps the lowest price isn't as important as good service and outstanding deliverables. So whether they need to work to help with wage increases, parking and transportation, a signing bonus, you know, I don't know, a positive space pass after one year service could be a nice recruiting and retention incentive. But clearly, airlines need to, and I think many of them are working with these service providers to address the staffing shortage because it could easily you know, bring airport operations to a halt. Chris, I think you nailed that. And I think the work between the airlines and their service providers does need to get more collaborative. And you're right, it is a joint solution they need to have. The airline industry, like all businesses, are facing lots of wage pressure, especially for the lowest paid workers. And in some ways, Robert, I think that in and of itself could mean sort of good news for service providers in the following way. If labor becomes a more expensive input cost to the aircraft service deliverable, which we all think it will, then airlines are going to be looking for more and more creative ways to sort of mitigate those increases in labor costs. And probably the most expensive way for them to respond to that would be bringing all those people in-house, maybe having to pay benefits to some of them, or maybe not being able to utilize them fully at a station which maybe only has one or two flights for that airline. So I think a solution in the future for airlines that include higher wages for labor and labor is just a higher input cost is probably going to include even more collaboration with service providers rather than less because they're going to be looking for very creative solutions for how to provide great service but be able to keep their fares low enough by keeping their costs low enough also. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the aircraft cleaner issue is an interesting one because for the past 
year and a half now, the cleanliness of aircraft is part of the value proposition. So you went from you know contracting this out and finding ways to do it very cheaply to then all of a sudden being able to assure your passengers how clean the aircraft is. And so to make sure it's done right is going to require some cost. Well, listeners, uh, Pratt & Whitney's GTF engines are redefining aviation, and with a 20% lower fuel burn, 50% fewer regulated emissions, and 75% smaller noise footprint, GTF engines have no comparison. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. So, Ben, I got a listener questions from Michael in Maryland. Guys, United announced they were buying a whole lot of airplanes last week. Besides the addition of narrow bodies, some new airframes seem intended to replace United's 50-seat flying outright. Air Wisconsin flies the oldest CRJ-200s that United has. The C-suite people United and Air Wisconsin surely can connect the dots, and I'm noticing a lack of an announcement to reassure people that United's 50-seat partners are much longer for this world. So from where you're sitting, how nervous are you for carriers like Air Wisconsin or Piedmont? Well, that's a terrific question, Michael. And I'm actually a little worried about Air Wisconsin and Piedmont and carriers like that because of United's announcement. They surprisingly talked about the great customer experience of moving out of a 50-seat RJ and moving into a new 737 Max with seat back video and things like that. But they didn't talk about what else is going to happen with those planes. Now, United has been in a hub building mode for the last couple of years, really since Scott Kirby has become their CEO. They've been building their hubs in Chicago, Denver, San Francisco, Houston by adding more and more feed. So they probably think that these bigger airplanes are going to be great for supporting that bigger connectivity through the hub kind of schedule. But without the 50-seaters, the question is whether they're going to just grow and deploy these 50-seaters into smaller markets, even smaller markets, or are they just going to stop employing as many 50-seaters? And the tonality of United's announcement, even though they didn't actually say these words, but sort of reading between the lines, it sort of suggested that they were saying, we're done with 50-seaters. And I don't know if that's what the C-suite there really thinks, but if that is what they're thinking, then Air Wisconsin or Piedmont, um, carriers like that, that fly 50-seaters for United, will certainly still have some business but probably less business going forward. And that could start as early as 2023. What that might mean is those carriers need to look at other airlines to work with to deploy that equipment or find creative ways for United within their building their hubs network to still use at least some of this kind of equipment. Yeah, I agree. And it's not just that they're flying 50-seaters, but like in Air Wisconsin's case and with Piedmont, I mean, they're flying 50 seaters for only one customer. So they're kind of locked into a relationship of which they don't have a lot of control. So Air Wisconsin's fleet is old, as uh, as uh, Michael points out. And so again, they're going to have to kind of prove to United what's the value proposition for Scott Kirby. You know, why keep doing business with Air Wisconsin? How are, we, how are you going to help us grow Air Wisconsin? And that would be the question I'd be asking them. That's right. Finer wine is next. 
But first, we want to thank the finance and investment banking team of Seabury Capital Group. Seabury's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. So Ben, when I saw this question come in, I thought about putting it into the previous section of listener questions, but it's just as much of a complaint. And so I'm going to put it here and let you be the judge about whether this is a fine or a wine. It's from Hickman Beckner. Do you really think that seats are the only thing that airlines overbook? They will overbook anything that has a finite capacity. Airline takeoff or landing slots, airplanes, gates, catering trucks, the icing equipment, staff, anything. It's in their DNA. Sounds like Hickman's has some anger issues with the airlines. Then they will blame the weather or some other circumstance beyond their control. This is not the first summer where we have ever experienced thunderstorms. They publish flight schedules. They do not have the resources to fly. Then they cancel the flights to fill the capacity they actually have another normal day in airline operations. So what say you, Ben, fine or wine? Well, I think this is a wine much more than a fine. And the reason I think it's a wine is Hickman is sort of complaining about the way the airlines do business, which is for many years has allowed the airlines to actually be profitable and hire lots of people and serve lots of customers. So I've never really thought of publishing flight schedules. You don't have the resources to fly as overbooking, but that is a creative way to think about it. And so kudos for thinking of it that way, Hickman. I think that's right. I don't know that you can say the same thing about slots and gates. Airlines can't overschedule gates at the airport. The airport won't let them. You certainly can't schedule more flights than you have slots for in the slot-controlled airports in the U.S. like LaGuardia and DCA. So some of those things apply to the overbooking argument, some don't. But I think the answer is that airlines are in such an uncertain period. We're now all of a sudden in this period of kind of boom traffic with lots of leisure traffic, lots of people traveling Fourth of July weekend, people bullish about a summer or so on. But we're coming off a year and a half where being able to predict sort of all flew out the window. So the fact that some airlines might be publishing schedules that they don't know how they're going to book and then decide to trim the schedule after that, I don't think you can blame them for that. And I don't know that that's not the case when, you know, Hickman is saying it's they didn't have the resources to fly. Did they not have the people? Did they not have the planes or so on? I continue to think American Airlines big cancellation, for example, which maybe Hickman's referring to or maybe he's not, um, you know, had more to do with they put out a lot of capacity and then realized some of it wasn't going to make sense to fly and might have been easy to blame people or blame not having enough people, I mean, or something else. But it was actually in percentage terms, not unlike what an airline typically trims, 1% to 2% of its schedule after it flies. So I actually, I think this is a whine of somebody saying, I just don't like the way the airlines run their business because they sometimes can't predict everything perfectly. And that's a tough thing to whine about in an industry with Mother Nature 
people and equipment, you know things are going to go wrong. And so, of course, airlines have to be able to deal with issues that go wrong with all three of those things. And sometimes they all go wrong at the same time. So it's a little bit whiny to me to complain that sometimes they do things that you might think are sort of just mean or non-economic when in fact they make the economics better and they allow more people to fly at lower fares. I know that's going to make me sound like a just a shill for the airline industry, but in reality, I think that's the case. I, I like that you well, put this as a finer wine, Chris, because I think that's exactly what it is. Well, and you know, certainly for the business traveler, when the business traveler was king, uh, and hopefully the business traveler will be back uh, on board more frequently soon. But for the business traveler, the frequency is what drives success. Because if I miss my three o'clock, I want to know that there's a four thirty. Or if my meeting finishes early and I can get to the airport, is there a one fifteen I can jump on? And so, uh, business travelers want and somewhat kind of expect quote, overscheduling with frequent flights because that drives their loyalty. And, you know, even Southwest customers over the years have come to like the fact, and that's how they were able to attract uh, more business travel as well, was the frequency of so many flights during the day in a, in a market. So part of this is the demand of consumers as well. So as we sign off for the week, it's time for our closing shout outs. I'm going to give mine to airline gate agents everywhere who have had a tough week and I'm sure are going to have some more tough weeks ahead of them this summer. So hang in there, guys. Well, Chris, that's a great shout out. And I'm going to jump right on top of it and say my shout out is to the flight, in-flight and maintenance crews at airlines who are having to all of a sudden fly a lot more airplanes, keep those airplanes healthy, and deal with a lot of customers, many of whom haven't flown in a long time. So I think for all airline employees out there, what you said and what I said, Chris, you know, good luck over the next couple of months, but feel fortunate that you're in an industry that people really need and are looking to come back to in real strong ways. Yeah, everyone's been waiting for this uh, moment of uh, full airplanes and full airports. So no whining. Uh, let's, uh, let's get at it. Thanks for joining us on Airlines Confidential. Have a good week. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.